This is the Cascade Hiker Podcast. Find us over at CascadeHikerPodcast.com. I'm a country boy with the soft side. My heart wanders up north to the hillside. Now I've never made anyone quite as beautiful as you. I'm your host, Rudy Gets It. I'm here to inspire you to get out on the trail. You putting in two-mile hikes, five-mile hikes? Are you still on the couch? Come on, let's go on a backpacking trip. I'm going to introduce you to some folks that have done that and a whole lot more. All right, next on the Cascade Hiker Podcast, what's your name and where are you from? Hey, I'm Brian Snyder. I'm, I grew up in upstate New York, uh, not the city, but uh, further up in the country, and I live currently in Santa Barbara, California. So you grew up in the good part of New York. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, I'm a kind of a country kid, so uh, I definitely uh, the, the the city scares me a little bit. Yeah, I'm an outdoors person. It was, I lived about four hours away from the city, so I, I kind of rarely got down there. And when I did, it was definitely with a claustrophobic feeling in mind uh, the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> well, the East Coast like a whole other wor- world to me. And when I think of uh, you know New York in general, I just think of New York City. I think a lot of West Coasters are that way. Hmm. Yeah, the uh, upstate has the giant, the giant Adirondack State Park. The place is huge; it's as big as a national park, and so there's lots of mountains up there and lots of lakes. And like, not, not a lot of people know it, but like up in the Adirondacks, you can have an entire lake to yourself to to, to camp at. You know, uh, for like a on a busy weekend. You know, the place is really sparsely populated, and you can have you know lots of solo time up there. Oh, that's perfect. Well, cool. Well, what brought you to Santa Barbara then? Uh, well, I I started um, kind of hopping towards the west after college. Uh, I I during my college uh, time, I went to college on the east coast, but then I was lucky to be able to have a year abroad in in Scotland, in Edinburgh, Scotland. And I was studying English at the time, so I um, I eventually got to use my writing. But uh, in Scotland, I discovered the highlands out there, and I always had a romantic kind of uh, draw towards like ruined castles and things like that. So I found out about, out about some kind of ruined castle, and I grabbed a bunch of friends, and my dorm just happened to be right next to a train station. So we'd hop on a train, hop out in the middle of nowhere in the highlands, then hike out to see these um, these ruined stone walls or ruined towers. And uh, I... I kind of fell in love with the, uh, the idea of exploration. And so when I got back to the States, I kind of, I, I wanted to get out of college. So I, I crammed as many ecology classes as I could into, um, my last year of school. And then I started teaching environmental education. So working at places like outdoor science schools where I would take kids hiking and then teach them geology and astronomy and botany. And, uh, yeah, these outdoor schools, usually they give their teachers housing which is nice. So yeah. it's, it's a really easy way to kind of hop around the country. So I gradually like, you know, hop from, you know, Maine to Massachusetts to Indiana to Colorado to Hawaii. And then I kind of went back to California and in that career as a naturalist, California kind of tends to pay the best. So once I got to California, it, it kind of captured me and I've been there ever since. Nice. Well, uh, that sounds like such a cool job, especially getting right out of college and then be able to travel and, and plus you're teaching kids something that you love. Yeah, it definitely gives you a, a lot of freedom I and mean, you don't earn a lot of money, but you live on site at these outdoor science schools. And so you don't spend a lot of money either. And, uh, and in the outdoor field, there's lots of really fun summer jobs, uh, for people, you know, uh, like at working at camps or being guides. Um, and I did that for a little bit, but I, I, 
eventually kind of discover that, you know, I, it's the prime time for traveling in the summertime. And if I, if I'm really smart about the way I spend my money, I can like save up during the school year and then, um, just travel the entire summer and, uh, and explore. And that's kind of what I've started doing. <laughs> I would say, I would say I started doing full time, but at least in my summers, I started spending my summers doing that about uh, 12 years ago. Wow. Well, you saved up a lot of adventures, man. I, I got your book uh, further off the map. I guess we didn't really introduce you as, as an author, but uh, um, <clears throat> that's what you are. And uh, so I got your book further off the map. And I, one thing that really drew me to the book is the fact that I'm not the uh, speedy reader. And I love how it's set up, how, I mean, literally each kind of sub chapter or whatever is just a few pages long. And it's really easy to just kind of read fall asleep, pick it right back up. Not a big deal. Yeah, thanks. It's uh, all these uh, chapters kind of have their genesis in newspaper articles. So as I was traveling, I um, I eventually got the opportunity to, opportunity to, to write for my just my hometown newspaper back in New York State. And that it gave me a schedule. It gave me a, a article a week to write. And um, later on, those articles got um, ed re-edited and compiled, and uh, now they're in. I uh, just put out the third book this summer. Wow! So three books. So it's uh, off the map, further off the map, and then uh, falling off the map. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Okay. Cool. And so the the three books are. Do they pretty much span the twelve years you're talking about? Then uh, they do. Yes. Um, so each each book contains three or four summers worth of of articles or adventures, you might say. And there, the articles usually are, they tend to be a bit about like, I don't know, like the natural disaster of the week. You know, usually it's cliffs, but there's a lot of times, you know, there's bears or storms or hypothermia or uh, dehydration or yeah, you know, the th things like that that make, make, that make good stories. Well, yeah. And there's some, there's some humor in it. And uh, one thing that I was uh, kind of, kind of reading up on was uh, like, you might find yourself at Burning Man. So yeah, that's a, that's, that's, was that on accident or? I, well, it, Burning Man takes up a good chunk of, of your time. And if you're supposed to write an outdoor adventure article a week, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Burning Man takes place in this, uh, the Black Rock Desert of Northwest Nevada. And if you, if it lasts a week, an entire week long, and so getting into the festival when the gates open can be really hectic. So I eventually started working with some camps that kind of build like mini villages within um, what they call Black Rock City, which eventually become, becomes like a city of like 70,000 people. Uh, and by working with a smaller village, I was able to get like early arrival passes so I could get in early and help build certain uh, certain parts of the city. And so... Yeah, so I'm out there like almost two weeks at a time and, and it's you, you can't really escape the desert. But the setting itself is is definitely well, it's like a wilderness setting. But then you just drop 70,000 people in there and it becomes a kind of a, a survival situation in a sense. <laughs> if you if you're not prepared, uh, you are going to definitely be hurting. You'll be inhaling dust the entire time or you'll get sunburned or dehydrated. And there's people that will take pity on you, yes, and kind of help you help you out. But people are supposed to be self-reliant uh, to a great degree. And people are supposed to, you know, to make sure they are nice and fit and healthy so they can have a good time. And so they can also uh, provide uh, some kind of gift back to the city. Because everybody goes to this festival 
so, you know, ideally, everybody goes to the festival with some kind of contribution, something they want to kind of give to everybody. Um, and that could be that you're going to build a dance club for people or you're going to serve free alcohol, free drinks, you know, for, for the whole night. Or you're going to play music for people or give free massages or cook them people pancakes. Uh, there's... Um, there are uh, a thousand different ways people kind of get involved with, within the city. So it doesn't operate by barter or by trade. It just operates operates by people be giving gifts and giving gifts in the most creative and insane ways possible. Yeah, man, that's a venture all on its own. I, I've always kind of been intrigued with it. That's why I brought it up because my sister had been a few times, uh, you know, mm-hmm. in the past. And so I was just kind of I've always had this itch to just kind of know what it's about and, you know, just kind of, kind of, uh, live vicariously through other people's stories, I guess. Um, well, uh, you know, I mean, I don't want to get too stuck on these, these type of stories, but, um, you know, kind of down that same line, um, you also jumped into a rainbow gathering. (laughs) Yeah, that's a, that's your neck of the woods there. Um, at least that year it was, I had a friend, uh, up, up in Portland that had never been to a rainbow gathering and I had never been. And so she, uh, she told me about it and it was definitely intriguing. It's a, the rainbow gathering has probably happened since the seventies or sixties. And, um, it's just basically a kind of a hippie family gathering, uh, so to speak, although 30,000 people or so will, will show up for it. And so about a month before it's supposed to happen, uh, online they'll, they'll announce which state it's supposed to happen in. And so everybody across the whole country can get in their RVs and vehicles and slowly start migrating towards that state. And then maybe a week or two before it actually happens, that's when they, they release the actual site, the actual spot where it's going to happen. And some, some of them go a little bit early to kind of build a little bit of infrastructure. And, and by doing that, the, what they do is they kind of build some fencing around some kind of sensitive wetland areas. Or they'll build kind of bridges across little tiny streams and uh, basically try to do what they can to minimize the damage that, that you know people sometimes naturally do to to a landscape when they camp out there for for a week or two. Um, they'll dig like um, trenches for latrines and all that. And so, <laughs> yeah, the Rainbow Gathering, kind of like Burning Man, it was definitely a, a different cultural experience for sure. Like when we uh, when we drove up to it uh, the year that we went, it was happening uh, very close to. I guess Mount Adams, uh, Southern Oregon, that, that area. Oh, Southern was, Washington. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Southern yeah, Washington. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I guess a place called Hookum, Hookum Meadow was where it was. So, uh, um, and it was a very heavy snowfall that winter. And so it's like two out of the three roads leading to it were still closed with snow when it was time for the festival to happen. And that caused like everybody to just be funneled down one single road and people you know, were parking to the left of the road and to the right of the road uh, along this road, but all those spaces filled up until people had to park like seven miles away from the trailhead and then hike all their gear and everything that they had like seven miles down the road to reach that spot. Now, I was taking um, uh, my Jeep. I have a Jeep called uh, Charlie. Uh, its name is Charlie. <laughs> and we've been together for 375,000 miles. So uh, it, Charlie can get a few places where other vehicles can't. And so we actually um, – we first parked seven miles away and started to hike in. But uh, um, my friend uh, Ivy, she had um, – she's comfortable with going to festivals and she has uh, – like she brought like a change of clothes for like every day we had out there. And she's a, a solid, like strong person but um, 
took we had, we just basically between the two of us we just had way too much uh, food and water and she after a hundred feet she was um, basically falling over so we got back <laughs> and we had you know we had seven miles to hike so we we hopped back in Charlie and decided just to try driving to the trailhead and once we got there. Charlie managed to back up up into this the tiniest little spots um, at a very steep angle, and so we thankfully didn't have to hike in too far to reach Chuka Meadow. And uh, yeah, and so once you're walking there, everybody's telling you "Welcome home, welcome home," and it's a very welcoming uh, neighborhood because people, you know, a lot of times this is the time of year with the one time of year all these families and people kind of um, they reunite. So it's a, a grand reunion. And people have, have created kitchens, and they are offer free food there, the kitchens. And uh, so we, we, you know, we made a camp, and we stayed there for a few days. And on the Fourth of July, everybody gathered around this one big meadow, uh, Hookah Meadow. And nobody was allowed to camp in the meadow, which was great. So we left it nice and open and pristine. But um, we all stood in the meadow and made this huge circle, you know, with a, uh, you know, thousands of people in this. A giant circle there and for the whole morning everybody stayed quiet everyone stayed silent it was a, a kind of a spiritual um morning um i forgot the context but uh but everyone managed to, to not talk the entire morning and then once we gathered in the circle there we were waiting for the last group of people to kind of fill in that one last gap and we could see the people rushing to fill that gap but one side of the circle just got a little too excited and they started cheering and hooping and hollering and and everybody else had to start cheering and hoop, hooping and hollering uh -huh. and my friend Ivy was like mad she was like she was like expecting this big giant ohm to happen um which actually it did it just it um, maybe want. perhaps if it, ha it happened a little bit prematurely <laughs> um maybe if the ring had completed we would have been transported to the sixth dimension or something like that um but you know it's, it's ten thousand hippies it's hard to expect that kind of uh synchronicity between uh <laughs> that many freedom loving people well that's a cool experience man i i that, yeah because i know my sister had also done one of those and um i know they talk about it in the book wild i think a lot of uh, outdoor people have, have have read that book um mm -hmm. But anyway, yeah, so that was kind of cool that you got to experience that. So I guess we kind of started out, uh, because of my lame questioning, uh, with two uh, <laughs> non-hiking uh, stories, but I, just, I kind of wanted to get those out of the way. So. Hey, a quick little break here to uh, spotlight one of my uh, sponsors. That's Waymark Gear Company, waymarkgearco.com. Um, you know, I'm playing around on the website, and I wanted to say – you, he has custom packs that are ready to go. You can order them right now. There's the through 38 40 to 42 liter packs. They start at 195. Uh, that's just 16 ounces. These are heavy duty ultralight backpacks. He also has a 50 liter packs. Uh, they call it the Cadillac of frameless packs. Uh, they're starting at 32 ounces um, from 225 bucks. So you know, go over there and check that out. There's some add-ons too you can do. Uh, the one I got. For my daughter's uh, pack is the mesh water bottle, and it just holds right there on the strap of your shoulder strap right in front, and it's nice to just have that water right there handy, ready to go. Um, some hip belt pockets, uh, zippered shoulder pouches. Um, I mean, really, you can do almost anything with these packs, along with, of course, uh, all the different colors you can choose and whatnot. So go over to waymarkgearco.com, and, you know, hey, at least just check them out right there. Why don't you pick, um, you know, a couple of stories from the, uh, the North Cascades or just the Cascade Mountains in general, other than the Rainbow uh, Gathering, to, uh, <laughs> to talk about? 
Of course, of course. I mean, I I just love the the geologic distinctiveness of the Cascades. How there's just these giant um, monstrosities of volcanoes or remnants of volcanoes that just kind of like hopscotch all the way up from Northern California up to um, British Columbia. So I've been lucky to uh, to be able to to hop on a few of those. Um, uh, a lot of times. Uh, my like my stories are about me approaching these these mountains unprepared like totally unprepared like i'm the only one up there like without helmets without crampons without without ice axe and i'm definitely not promoting those kind of behaviors <laughs> for sure <laughs> but uh but yeah as i as i said i've been traveling i have to travel on the cheap a lot of times to be able to travel all summer and so i'll forego those things and so um, so instead of having crampons, I'll like hike, start hiking earlier in the day or later on in the morning. So that way the snow has been become a little bit soft and my feet can sink in a little bit. And so I'll have a little bit more traction. Um, and I've been able to get up a few, a few mountains that way, like Mount Hood. Um, uh, and, but you've got some really, int- oh, really interesting ones. Uh, the, I think the newest book covers, uh, um, Mount Rainier for sure. And it covers, uh, which is the broken top was, uh, was a nice one there. Um, broken top has, is a mountain where like before you get to the very, very top, there's this kind of cliff band and that's all these volcanoes tend to like the harder ones tend to have this kind of cliff band that kind of might blocks easy access to the top. And, and the, and this one did for sure as we got to the, as I got to the top there, um, there was, a some guides leading a group of people down a, a class five face and I kind of hung out there for a while. I knew there was a, a class four or five route that, um, around the corner that I could try, but I was just way too intimidated until, um, I, st- I, I met, uh, just made some friends and they were going to like, and together, uh, we decided we we're going to give it a shot. And so, uh, yeah, broken top has a, a cliff band. It's only about 10 feet high or eight feet high, but, um, it requires a class four or five move. And then just above it is this, um, this whole, this 30 foot long, uh, f- uh, uh, sloping section where there's, it's just gravel and debris there. And so if you slip on that, that spot, you'll just slide down and then you'll drop down that, uh, um, eight foot cliff and probably bounce down a few more cliffs besides that. Wow. Uh, so we got up that and, and then broken top has this cool catwalk again, very close to the summit there. Uh, like this very slender, uh, walkway you have to walk. And then there's one more class four or five move up near the top and then you're, you're up there. Um, and Mount Thielsen is another tricky one that doesn't have a cliff band, but it has, um, this volcanic plug remnant at the very, very top. And that one they call like the lightning rod of the cascades. <laughs> have you, I don't know if you've if you've if you've gone by that one. I've they, been around they, it, yeah. Yeah, the Pacific Trail, Pacific Crest Trail goes right by it. Yeah. And uh, most people stop at this place called Chicken. I think it's, maybe it's called Chicken Out Ridge or Chicken Out Point, something like that. And it's just below the the spire. It's like this thirty foot um, tip of this volcanic plug that sticks up and leans over, and it's all like class four and five moves for that last thirty feet. And there were some uh, uh, Crest Trail hikers that were camped out there picnicking. And so since they were there, I felt a little bit more comfortable trying that out. So on the way up, as I was going on the way up, those guys left. And then I felt <laughs> felt very scared and very alone and wishing they would come back. Um, 
but I made it. I made it to the top. It was just on the way down that I realized I was definitely in way in, way in over my head. Um, because you know, class two moves are are fine. Class three uh, moves are fun because they're nice scrambles. You got to use your hands and feet for those. But class four moves are the ones where you know if you fall, there's probably like a fifty percent chance you're gonna die. And then, uh, you know, class five moves, it's, you know, your chances are going up more up to like, you know, 80, 90%. So, uh, um, I, I, on that mountain, I found some webbing that some people had left behind for anchors and I felt a little bad, a little bit bad taking the webbing, but I was able to take, get two pieces and like thread one through my waist belt and then tie it to make a lasso out of the other one. And, um, uh, because it's a volcanic plug, the rock was just very hard and very dense and it had a bunch of horns, just these protrusions sticking out. And so I could lasso these protrusions and, uh, and then use it to, as like a insurance while I like made, um, a sketch, a sketchy part of the descent. And then I'd flip the lasso off and then hook another, uh, horn that way. And, and that way I was able to make it, uh, back down into chicken out points and, uh, not not uh wet my pants or <laughs> too, too badly or anything like that you were trying to chicken out above chicken out point <laughs> yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> um yeah i think that's down by uh, uh crater lake down there mm-hmm. yeah oh man such beautiful areas what um and then you also were up like in the uh, north cascades like copper ridge oh yeah that have was you, have you ex- yes have you explored up there well okay. i believe uh because you, you mentioned like slate peak and uh that I've been up there, Pacific Crest Trails up there. That's actually the section that uh, I adopted for uh, you know working on it. Okay. Uh, and so yeah, I've been in the area. I can't remember if I've actually been to Copper Ridge or not. Yes. It's oh, that that area is uh, I, it's it's so much like the Alps, and I've actually never been to the Alps, but <laughs> it, but the way the the landscape is just sculpted and the contours that it has, it just has this aesthetic beauty to it. Um, it's just almost like if you take a, I don't know, I don't know, like take someone's hair and put in a whole bunch of hair gel in it and kind of like scrunch it up a little bit. And that's kind of what the mountains looked like to me anyway up there. And yeah, Copper Ridge is a, a, just a great backpacking trip. It's just a, for me, it was just going in and going out, but it provides great views of, um, you know, I guess Mount Baker, uh, just to the south of there and, uh, just the, just misty mountain valleys below you. Um, I, I need to get back there. It's, it's, it's yeah. an unreal location. And did you do the loop then? I, I think I, when I did it, I was just, it was just an out and back for me. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right on. Yeah, that's a cool area. I've done part of that hike. I was just looking it up as we were talking. Um, but yeah, I could have swore you also mentioned uh, Slate Peak in there. That's over kind of out of uh, Mazama, Winthrop area on the other side of the North Cascades. But either way, I mean, yeah, you were right there by uh, by Mount Shuxan and Mount Baker. Uh, are either of those on your list? I <laughs> they they are. Uh, like when I. Uh... When I climbed Mount Rainier, I, I hooked up with two other hikers that I, I met over the internet just because Mount Rainier is uh, dangerous, very dangerous to do by yourself. Plus, the national park doesn't like very rarely allow solo hikers to to do it uh, just by themselves. You have to get special permission from the superintendent. And after that hike, that hike kicked our, our butts so badly that, you know, even though I had planned to, to go on and do Baker and Chuck Sand with one of my 
um, co-hikers, uh, we were so exhausted. We, we got a pizza and promptly decided that one, one beast of a mountain was definitely enough for us for that summer. Yeah, no kidding. Well, that was one question I was going to have for you was, uh, talking about, um, your, your friend that's a hiker, your friend Ivy, you know, all these people you mentioned throughout the book and, um, are these people you met through college or just on other hikes or how do you know all these people throughout the whole country? <laughs> Uh, I guess, well, through my travels, it's sometimes it's kind of a, it's a, when I, you're trying to travel cheaply, sometimes it's a little bit of a lonely ex- existence because instead of going out to a bar and getting a drink, you know, you're just hanging out in your camp because you're trying to save some money instead of going out and like going to a restaurant or a diner and, and, and buying some food again, you're, you're buy cheap food and you camp in your campsite. So the people that I do meet tend to be like while backpacking, um, you know, people I pass by at campsites. Uh, some of them are people that I've, I've grown to, to know here in Santa Barbara. And in Santa Barbara, I'm friends with a lot of, I guess you might say, artists and musicians. But Southern California is a hard place to live if you're just an artist or a musician just trying to get by. So uh, especially, yeah, at Santa Barbara, the housing prices are insane here. So I know a lot of people that have stayed here for a few years and then they've gone off to live places where it's, it's so much more affordable. And so those scattered people are also people that I will visit along the way. And I, and I usually almost always hike alone just because then I I can, the risks I'm taking are ones that I'm I'm only myself are, is responsible for. But, uh, yeah, there are, it's nice to see friends now and again and also have a place to, to shower along the way. Well, I've also found that it's not only the risks, uh, you know, you're putting your, putting your own self in your own risks, but it's also, um, you don't know just because you knew that person at one time, you know, that doesn't mean that they're going to be able to hang with you on your tight schedule where you're trying to, especially with your adventuring schedule, you know, it doesn't mean they're always going to be in the same shape as you or the same, you know, have the same attitude as you. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. That's probably, probably has a little something to do with it too. What's uh, (laughs) up? But meeting up with those people uh, make for some great stories. So, have you ever uh, jumped out and onto the trail with somebody that maybe you thought you knew better than you did, or you have any stories like that, like <laughs> the failed attempts? Oh, Mount Rainier almost became a failed attempt uh, because those were people again that I had not. Um, I had not known prior to doing this hike, um, just some people that I found on a, on a climbers forum. And, uh, when we showed up, uh, we were just, we were very interesting trio cause, uh, one of them had climbed Mount Rainier two times already. And, uh, and, uh, so he was, he was a good guy for experience, but uh, just strangely uncommunicative. Uh, it was weird. Like he, uh, like I would, you, we, to climb or near, you have to, you know, wear har- rock climbing harnesses and helmets and have crampons and ice axes, and you have to be kind of roped up together. That way, if one of you slips and starts heading towards a crevasse, everybody else can, like, you know, put their jam their ice axes in as well and hopefully stop your slide. Um, and so, to keep you from from getting too much speed if you're slipping and sliding down um, a cliff or something like that, the rope between the three of you or the five of you or whatever, that rope has to stay pretty tight. And so when you're hiking, you've got to keep that rope tight at all times, which causes some tugging and some pulling and, um, some frustration. And for me, who, who always, almost always hike solo, it was, it was a little hard for me to, to constantly be thinking about the position of, of the people in front of me and behind me. 
And this guy who had great experience, we were lucky to have him for sure, just would never let me know when he was stopping to for a break. And so I would be the first person in the in the lead there um, hiking. And uh, he would suddenly stop and I would just suddenly, suddenly be jerked back, which is frustrating, but not too severe, except there was a time or two where I was shouting out, okay, I'm crossing, crossing this crevasse now. <laughs> and I would step, step over this crevasse and instantly that's the moment he chooses to take a break and I get jerked back and nearly almost fall into a 20 foot crevasse. Oh man. <laughs> uh, so that was his quirk. And, um, there was a, a young kid who had just taken a, um, a mountaineering class and this was one of his first major peaks and, and he was, he was, he was pretty good. Um, he was, he was a good person to be with, but, um, his, his quirk was that he had the worst case of, of case of athlete's foot that I've ever, ever encountered. So if you're, you know, even if his, his socks deep in these really tall boots on the trail, you could smell him, um, from like a long ways away. And to, to climb this mountain, most people, um, they will, um, you drive like around two, 6,000 feet to the trailhead and then you have to hike up 4,800 feet to reach Camp Muir where there are, there are a few huts, you know, someone that you can, if they're on their space inside, you have a, you can have a indoor place to stay. Um, but when he, we got to these huts there, um, for the first night, uh, and he stepped inside there and I could start to smell just the the his sense just starting to permeate um this whole this whole building i decided i, I i'm i'm definitely gonna i guess camp outside and there were two guys already in there in the sleeping bags that were just already curled up and, uh, ready to take a nap and i felt so bad for them um and what awaited them um that night oh, so uh <laughs> So yeah, that was his quirk, and and I guess my quirk was because I, I have a lot of experience climbing these mountains um, without the proper equipment. So I have I have a lot of experience being stupid at these mountains. So but I, which meant I didn't have a lot of experience using an ice axe or using crampons, which is you know which can be a detriment to your group if you don't know how to hold an ice axe then then you can put your group at a danger. So I had to, to quickly learn the ropes of that and, and make sure that I had keep the, the technique firmly in mind about how to jam the ice axe and how to position my body weight so I wouldn't uh, be a detriment to uh, my group. Um, and the same went for my crampons. Um, I had been given crampons as a gift and partway up the you know, the, um, you can't, you camp out, basically a lot of people sleep out for, um, the first night and then you get up at midnight or before midnight and then you start hiking up, uh, the next day you start climbing the final 4,200 feet and, uh, partway on the way up, you know, we were crossing, um, uh, crossing the, uh, the glacier and there's a, you know, a, a multi-ton iceberg like hanging above our heads and then my crampons fall off and this guided group that passes by someone points out, you know, those are the wrong kind of crampons for your boots, right? Uh. Which I, I didn't know. Um, but most, the right type of boots have a certain tab right in front, which uh, this metal bar kind of slots into. And I was just jury rigging it by flipping it over my my boots, which worked okay. But um, my crampons did jet, jettison themselves, at least partially, um, a couple times in that hike. So I did the best I can, best I could. But um, definitely, my quirk was was not maybe not being the most knowledgeable about 
mountaineering the way it should be done. Yeah. Well, and it's so easy to point at other people and say like, oh man, I can't believe you're doing that. But then it's, it's cool that you pointed at yourself and you had your own quirk too. Cause I mean, none of us, none of us can, can honestly say that uh, we're not out there making mistakes too. So I, I don't want anybody to ever think that I think I'm a professional, you know, or, you know, a perfect, I should say. So yeah, no, that's good. Um, yeah. And kind of down that same line, uh, I was just recalling one of your, uh, <clears throat> excerpts from, from the, off the map, uh, further off the map, sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you, uh, you, you lost your bearings, it was called, it's called losing my bearings. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I like that story because I can relate so much to, in, uh, you know, just, just in a regular hike and, uh, you know, how easy it can be to just, you know, Oh, whoops. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's the case where I had a, I had a map and I, I had a map of my, my terrain there. I was trying to take out maybe a, um, a few high, just high points in Rocky Mountain National Park. But I had the map was in a part of my backpack where it was ended up being against my back. And so the friction of the first couple of miles and the sweat that was coming off my back into my backpack, all that friction and dampness just completely shredded the map uh-huh. until, until a few like uh, scarcely usable remnants. Which uh, I just meant I had to um, go by, uh, I guess, landmarks. Had to uh, just sort of survey the terrain when I could, and that way, um, it, Rocky Mountain National Park is in uh, kind of the uh, north. You know, it's the northeast edge of the Front Range of Colorado, and there's a few high points where the the, the mountains kind of breach above the trees, but otherwise you're you're a little bit in a sea of trees. And so, uh, every time I popped up above the trees, I'd have to sort of, sort of survey the land and memorize it and then dive back into the forest and hopefully resurface again where I had hoped to be. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then, uh, you know, you mentioned you get all the way down to the bottom and then, and then you realize that you didn't make the, the exact spot you wanted to. <laughs> yep, yeah. And then you improvise. <laughs> <laughs> That's good, man. I like that. Well, um, I'm just kind of peeking on your website here. I want to point out to listeners that uh, really easy website to follow. I mean, you got all your, your books listed there. Um, we didn't really talk at all about uh, renegade car camping. So what, what is that about? Well, after, um, you know, after all these summers, I kind of gradually, uh, I guess, gradually began to appreciate that, hey, you know, I, one thing I can, I can teach people, even if I can't teach, teach people how to uh, – how to take the least amount of risks on mountains. If I'm, even, if I'm not a good model there, at least I can teach people how to, to travel cheaply and uh, how to travel on a very cheap budget and be able to afford these kind of cross-country trips. So I wrote a short book called Renegade Car Camping. It's uh, a guide to finding a guide to free campsites and having the ultimate road trip experience. So it's a book that kind of details all the range of public lands out there in the West where people could um, like just drive their car up and pitch a tent. So we, we cover, um, um, you know, national forests, of course, but Bureau, Bureau of Land Management lands, um, uh, you know, places by dams and reservoirs, which are usually run by the Bureau of Reclam- Reclam- Reclamation. Um, also like city parks, municipal, municipal areas, things like hot springs, things like camping underneath power lines. And we talk about just the sort of just the tricks of, of gear that to help you have a comfortable experience because if you're if it's night after night after night and you're uh sleeping on hard ground you know eventually it's gonna it's gonna wear you down and um make the the situation less than enjoyable so it's all the tricks and tips that kind of i've kind of picked up and learned over the course of all those summers 
All right, a quick break here to spotlight uh, Lux Tents. That's uh, LuxHikingGear.com, L-U-X-E-Hiking-Gear.com. Uh, we're going to talk about the their uh, cheapest tent that you can pick up. I mean, in price, not quality, of course. Um, that's the Mini Peak Pyramid Two Person Backpacking Tent, and uh, this is one hundred and fifteen dollars. Go to their site and check it out. Uh, like I say, luxe hiking gear dot com. There's a link in the show notes, of course. Um, you know, right now it's, I'm on the website, kind of checking it out, and uh, this is a three season. Uh, you know, 2.2 pound, two person tent. You know, there's no floor. It's the uh, um, pyramid style that Lux Hiking Gear does. And anyway, you know, if you really want to go cheap, cheap and lightweight, you know, check this out. I mean, this is kind of like I've been saying, uh, just the better way to go because it's a more personal relationship with the brand um, to local to me company uh cottage company here and jake's a friend of mine and he's sponsoring the show so i want you guys to at least go check it out l-u-x-e dash hiking dash gear.com thanks so much enjoy the rest of the show one thing that uh, that i i kind of concern myself with and i and i've never had any issues with this but uh when you when you do car camp to go on an adventure and eventually you're hitting the trail um mm-hmm. You know, you've got your car there, and it's got all your gear in it sitting right at the trailhead. And, I mean, yes. you're talking tent and uh, inflatable beds or whatever it may be, your sleeping bags. Have you ever had any issues with that or concerns? Uh, I haven't, but I with people kind of breaking into your vehicle. Yeah. I haven't exactly, but to for insurance, there have, there have been some busy trailheads where I've been a little bit worried. And so... I, you know, I, I bring a laptop with me and I, you know, I charge it in the car as I'm driving because, you know, because at nighttime, if I'm car camping, I like to actually sit in my tent at nights and, you know, watch a movie off my laptop, pop some popcorn. Mm-hmm. Um, but the laptop is the most valuable thing I usually bring with me, bring with me. And so when I, uh, in cases where I'm on a popular trailhead, I will stick that laptop into a huge Ziploc bag or a dry bag and then stash it somewhere near the trailhead and bury it a little bit, which is taking possibly taking an additional risk. But in case, just in case something happened with my, my Jeep, um, I know that the, the laptop wouldn't, would probably not get taken. That's a good, that's a good answer. And, um, I'm wondering like, so, so you, so obviously you're not as concerned, like, okay, somebody takes my tent. Cool. But I need my laptop. So that's, that's, that's like your number one item. Uh, it is for sure. I mean, I, I, as, as a writer, um, uh, during the summertime, a lot of times I will have to travel at least once a week to a library to, to write up my articles or type them in. And the one time where I've really encountered, um, that, that I guess the criminal element you might say is when I was up, it was, I was near the wind river range of Wyoming and I had, had to go into town to the town of, Ooh, I can't remember the name. Uh, just into it. There's one of these uh, uh, gas, go, uh, gas and oil um, towns. Anyway, um, I had to uh, head into town to write an article. And I decided to leave my tent in, set up in the National Forest and just drive down for the day. So in my tent, I had comforters, sleeping bags. I had my uh, eight-foot or eight-inch mattress underneath my bed. 
and I just tucked my um, my cook stove as well underneath the tent and had a pillow and sheets and everything in there and a, a crazy creek chair and went to the town right to write my article. Um, not realizing that it was homecoming weekend there in this, uh, this town of Wyoming. And so all the teenagers were out in the mountains having a great time. And, <laughs> and definitely alcohol was, was involved in these situations. So people probably weren't making the, mo- the best and most ethical decisions. So when I got back to my tent that night, it was snowing and my tent and everything was completely gone, of course. So, uh, uh, yeah, I definitely learned a lesson that day for sure. Oh, and man. I drove to, I drove into town, did a police report. Um, a motel was good to give me a, a cheap place for the night. And, um, I, I, I tried to let, not let it spoil my, my trip. Um, so as I was heading out of this town, heading towards Jackson, Wyoming, I picked up a hitchhiker and I must've had some good karma because the hitchhiker, um, I dropped him off at his house in Jackson and he stayed there one night and then he told me, Hey, you can, you can stay here for a week and, um, you'll have a free, free place to stay. Wow. Yeah. Um, which was, if you're climbing the Grand Tetons, uh, it definitely made for the best base camp for sure. Oh, that's so cool, man. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes those uh, situations just fall right in your lap too. Man, that's mm-hmm. great. Uh, but, well, it's summertime right now. So, um, why aren't you adventuring? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this, this summer, uh, I, I guess it's one is relationships require, uh, maintenance and, um, and due diligence. And so I'm in this point in my life, I'm trying to find a good balance between, um, between traveling on my own and also enjoying some great time with uh, my girlfriend. So my, my trip this summer is, is going to be pretty short. I'm also, um, still also trying to, uh, recharge the bank account as we speak. <laughs> so it's a short, it's a short trip. I'm going up to, um, help my girlfriend. She is going up towards Lake Tahoe to do a horse endurance ride of a hundred miles. It's this ride called Tevis where, uh, the horses travel from, uh, you know, on a trail from like Lake Tahoe down towards Auburn, California. And they have, they try to do a hundred miles in 24 hours. So they start in the middle of the night and end the middle of the night the next day, a lot of them. And along the way, there's veterinarians, there's like 10 veterinary, veterinary checks. So the, the, the vets there, they, they test your horse, they, uh, they take samples. And if your horse does not pass the test in any way, they'll, they'll ground your horse. So only about 50% of the riders actually do finish the race, um, at the end. And this is my girlfriend's second time doing it. So we're going to be part of her crew to help her, um, in her own adventure, um, of this ride. And then after that event, that adventure, um, um, my girlfriend's sister and I are going to go up to the grand Tetons of Wyoming because I've never climbed the grand and my girlfriend's sister is a, is a, a climber. And so we're going to tackle the grand Teton and after which I'll head up to Montana for a little bit and then the Burning Man Festival one more time. Nice. Well, that, that race you're talking about, or is it a race? Uh, it sounds crazy. It is a race. Um, it is a race, but it's an endurance race. And so if you're, you're not trying to kill your horse, because if you, you try, the veterinarians will stop you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you have to maintain a really steady pace and be very smart about when the times which you, when, when you push your horse and the times when you have to get out and, and walk alongside your horse as well. Wow. 
that, yeah, that's a whole different prep. I mean, I've talked to some, uh, you know, ultra runner type people and, uh, man, but that's, you know, that's them and their body, you know, it's, uh, just mm -hmm. unique, uh, to think about that. Like just, wow. You know, you, cause she also has to prep too. It's not like she just has to make sure her horse is good. Cause being able to ride a horse that much, or even just be able to, um, I don't know, man, that just sounds crazy. <laughs> it's not, not my world. Yeah. Yeah. You have to make care very careful cal calculations about how much you want to push your horse for every little segment of the way. So last year, my girlfriend um, succeeded for the first time on the Tevis ride, and but she finished in like it was like 23 hours and 41 minutes. It was right up to the wire there, but um, but she she made it. Wow! And is this something that they do in multiple locations, or is this just the one that she feel com feels comfortable doing? Most people in the horse endurance world usually go to races where um, like. Each day they have like a 25-mile race and a 50-mile race. So those are the normal options. And there's only a couple races um, around the country, around the world, that's, that are 100 miles. And the Tevis race might be the, the most difficult out of those 100-mile races. Oh. Wow, cool. Well, thanks for kind of filling me in there. That's, that's really interesting. Uh, so I uh, just kind of want to talk about your website, offthemapbooks.com. Uh, mm -hmm. I just want to make sure to encourage people to go check that out. Yeah, if they had if they had there and feel like uh, um, surrendering their surrender, surrendering their email address, I promise I will take very good care of it. Um, <laughs> you will be able to actually get uh, pick up my first book off the map for free if you want to hear some outdoor adventure stories, and you can also pick up Renegade Car Camping for free and hear about how I um, how I managed to uh, afford to do the, those stories. Yeah, and then um, so I'm, I'm on your website right now. Uh, how do where do you go to to do your uh, to give your uh, email? Uh, well, when the, the, you first pop on the website, the word explore appears right there in the middle. So you can either click that explore or you can scroll down and it, it shows you, uh, links, other links to my books right there. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's easy. I just did it. Okay, cool. Right on. And then, uh, you also have a Facebook page. I do. Yep. If you type in off the map books on Facebook, you find me there. If you type in off the map books and on Instagram, you will find lots more photos there too. Oh, okay. Instagram. Nice. All right. Well, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm just kind of diving into the Instagram world, so I've been yeah. integrated with uh, you know Facebook, and then it's like, oh man, this is a whole other thing to have to learn. So, yeah, I know it's just one more thing, but uh, I, I, but it's it's a nice spot, Instagram. There, I haven't gone as far as LinkedIn or Snapchat or those things, so I, I don't think I will probably stray too far into other social media, um, and not, unless the next big thing suddenly sweeps me away. <laughs> all right. Well, any, uh, any plans for any upcoming books at all? Uh, after, um, after the summer, I'll definitely be putting out, uh, um, occasional stories now and again. I'm not writing every week now. I've sort of, had, um, taken a little bit of break from that so I can focus on actually what I'm going to do next is uh, young adult fantasy fiction. Oh, wow. There are, yeah, there's some stories that are completely in my head that I would love to get out there and, Hopefully, I'll be able to, to take um, what I've learned through writing outdoor adventure in terms of just creating tension and creating creating vivid image, imagery. I'll be able to take those uh, skills and apply them to um, young adult fiction. Yeah. Wow, that's really cool. What uh, what area of young adult fiction? Like, are you going to use your same? So, will it be about like adventuring? You think then? Uh, not as such. I I I I just sort of thought about. The story that I wanted to write, um, I was sort of looking at, okay, like all the 
iconic groups of characters that people love, like, um, you know, the, like the Winnie the Pooh characters or like the Muppets or Guardians of the Galaxy. You know, it's, it tends to be a whole group of misfits that are kind of all kind of put together um, in one spot. So I thought about, all right, how do I create the most diverse group of misfits totally possible? I like that. Yeah. And so, uh, so in my, my story is going to involve, um, a, a group of various, uh, sentient beings. It's going to be set in our real world, but the real world that has, um, portals to other, uh, not versions of our world, but other, um, other parts of our world where other intelligences are the most conscious ones. So overlapping our world is basically the world where all the animals are sentient and where another is another world where all the, the plants uh, creatures are sentient. Another world where all the electronics are sentient and another world where there's actually uh, ghosts who uh, um, believe they're the only sentient ones. And you know, the humans in their world, they don't actually see as being thinking sentient creatures they see them more as like almost like incubation um vessels for um that might eventually perhaps produce a conscious being which is which is them which is the ghosts there so um by um each of these realms will kind of produce a character that will eventually have to band together to save the world uh so i'm looking forward to definitely writing those stories and uh and having the adventures in my head be uh, the ones people will, will be able to explore. I like that, man. That sounds really cool. I, I like that idea. But, um, okay, well, hey, uh, anything you wanted to get off your chest before we sign off? Uh, no, I, I thanks a lot for your time. It's uh, been great to be able to chat with you about such a beautiful part of the country. Yeah, well, I encourage people to check out the books. Really, really good stuff, man. Thank you. Thanks. All right, that's the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. Don't forget to join the Patreon page. Find me at patreon.com slash cascadehikerpodcast. Also, hit me up uh, with an email, rudy at cascadehikerpodcast.com. Find me on Facebook. My Facebook page is Cascade Hiker Podcast. Twitter, find me at in underscore Cascade Hiking. And I'm Cascade Hiker Podcast on Instagram. Thanks, Whiskey Fever, for letting me use this track here, Tall Grass, off their album, Gonna Wake Up This Whole Town. Go find them at ReverbNation.com slash Whiskey Fever. Hey, see you next week. You were sweet like honey on a heartbeat. You were fine like wine and sunshine. I could feel you coming on strong. Could never be wrong. Could never be wrong. See her laying down in the tall grass. Playing mandolin in a white dress. So come running when I hear that song. It could never be wrong. It could never be wrong. Where you want to run, baby, I'll run too. I would leave this world for a beautiful girl if I could just find.